Welcome to Piecing It All Together. It's been reported that I'm Randy Woodley. <laughs> Allegedly, I am Bo Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Piecing It All Together. We are talking about the difference or the similarity between wisdom and reason today, and we also want to wade into the history 399 years of Thanksgiving. So we're going to have some fun today. We're glad that you're here. Yeah. Are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, we are glad that you are here in for the journey. We look forward to hearing uh, from you as uh, we go forward in this conversation. We are enjoying the feedback that we do get. So we want to encourage you to share the episode, to give us comments and feedback. You can email us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com. You can comment on the Facebook page. If you're a Patreon supporter, you can connect with us there. We love getting feedback on our episodes. Yes, we do. Yeah. Randy, I have a story for you about reason that I would love to get your feedback on. Well, it sounds reasonable. <laughs> so I've been doing a learning cohort this fall, and we got talking the other day about uh, this thing that actually is in our book, Decolonizing Evangelicalism, uh, that I'm a big fan of for religious folks to have scripture, tradition, experience, and reason to be in partnership together. So it gets called the quadrilateral. quadrilateral. Yeah, yeah. Quadrilateral. yeah. And I'm a big fan of it. But somebody asked me a question about the difference between experience and reason. And initially, my thought was that experience is largely personal, that you have your experience and it's yours. Right. No one can sort of contest your experience. And I said that reason was more communal, that it's a collaborative effort that has to happen sort of um, discerned in community. Well, afterwards, a couple of people reached out to me and I realized that that's not a very good distinction because <laughs> experience is also had in community that your mm -hmm the family of origin, your community that you're raised in, even the language that you speak, the stories that you've been told, the narratives that you live into, the practices that you participate in are all a part of your experience. So I instantly realized that that individualistic approach to experience was sort of flawed. But then I also immediately, even as I was saying it, realized that reason, while it is communal, it has to be done, right, in collaboration. That um, what different communities call reason or what's reasonable, it differs widely based on your location and your time. And so I just wanted to have a conversation with you about um, approaches of understanding issues related to wisdom and reason, communal discernment, individual experience, and just sort of pick your brain on this because I realized that my explanation was a little too simplistic and I was hoping to sort of flesh it out with you. Okay. Let me question your question. Yes. Um, 
On the first point, what is it that makes you think that reason has to be communal? That is a great question. My, <laughs> my reasoning, if you will, is that uh, reason is something that's sort of external to our brain, right? It's something we participate in that's, it's like a web of agreement. And so you almost need somebody, it's a reason can be what you can talk other people into. They'll say, well, that seems reasonable. Well, that's but, an argument, but you just reasoned about reason by yeah. yourself. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be communal, does it? I think that the frameworks were given that we've inherited, you know, we've all been uh, socialized and conditioned and groomed and raised and trained and taught and uh, facilitated that the building blocks we have or the frameworks that we have come to us. There's a givenness to them. Our community gives them to us. And so none of us are a blank slate, right? We don't start from nothing, ex nihilo, as they say, out of nothing. We come into, we live up into a larger story. And so there's a framework that's provided to us. I don't know that I can think outside the logic, if you will, if you can call it that, that I have been taught and, you know, that's come to me. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Um, if I learn by setting by a fire not to touch the, the uh, fire, then it's reasonable that the next time I see fire that I'm not going to touch it. And maybe yeah. no one has ever said that to me. I mean, I okay. think reason isn't isolated to communal uh, thinking. Now, you know, probably good reason is, right? But uh, hmm. so, well, I think the first thing that I would uh, like to do is to talk about um, um, how this be these became categories that we're even okay. using, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, they have their source uh, in Greek um, philosophy mm -hmm. um, when we begin to separate, um, you know, reason from lived experience. Um, uh, and uh, there's a tinge of that in the Platonic dualism. But where it really takes off is during the Enlightenment or the age of reason, if you will. And what happens during the age of reason uh, is that um, people um, no longer understand truth as both subjective and objective mm -hmm. uh, together as a total way of thinking. Yeah. But now the objective um, outweighs the subjective right. um, in reasoning. Okay. So in other words, it's only what you can prove to me objectively. Well, you know, we don't just live in an objective world that we yeah. also live in a subjective world. And so when you put the two of those back together again, mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to, to do that category. The other thing you, you have going on is um, the uh, lived experience that you talked about before and knowledge. Mm -hmm. So again, this, this harkens back to the dualism, Platonic dualism, um, which which begins to separate what we actually do in our bodies and what we do on earth from 
uh, how we think about those things. And in the age of reason, more emphasis is put on the thought of those things than what actually you do. And this is, and the church bought into this wholesale. Yeah. And so this is why you have um, uh, such an emphasis on the products of the mind, like doctrine and uh, church covenants and theologies and all of those things, which have nothing to do with your lived experience necessarily. Right. Now, you and I have talked a number of times, and you've, I think you've agreed with me, that having correct doctrine never guarantees that you will have a, a good outcome. <laughs> no. And See, yet, actually, what is the thing that the, yeah. Go ahead. It's, it almost seems irrelevant to the outcome at some level. Well, if civilization, Western civilization has proven anything, it proves that. <laughs> that those who believe they have the correct doctrine mm. uh, do not guarantee a future that is uh, based on good things because mm-hmm. they will always violate the doctrine and rationalize it. And again, reason it out, right? Yeah. So when... When these two things, um, lived experience and the process of the mind or reasoning, are separated and one is emphasized over the other, it creates, again, a false reality. And, uh, um, and, and that's not how real life works. Real life is about like you, uh, a consistency, a coherency, and what you sort of believe uh, uh, and, and what you actually do, Right. So I think that this problem has its roots, especially in the Enlightenment. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, everyone loves to blame this guy uh, with the last name Descartes and this this Cartesian problem. You know, his famous quote is, uh, I think, therefore I am, which is mm-hmm. probably better translated out of French as I doubt, therefore I am. But it, either way, it all gets into whatever I think I am. Well, I make an argument in my book, Shalom, about Descartes, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and I think whether that is what he meant or not, he actually lived the philosophy, I think, therefore uh, I am. Uh, and and he proved it by being uh, one of the first people to do, ever do vivisection. I mean, he his before the, the body was considered sacred, and he would actually dig up, pay people to dig up bodies and then do vivisection on them. I thought that was that that's a, a really interesting thing to come out of a person who at least popularly was considered uh, to have uh, the phrase, you know, I think therefore I am. And sometimes it really doesn't matter like what you meant. It's yeah. how people understood it and the influence that it has. Right. Yeah. Once, once it is out of your mouth or your head and you're not in control of it anymore, whatever it becomes, you are still responsible for <laughs> You know, the, the the way that it's come actually into our age is people will say mind over matter. That's a popular saying. It's like if you're you hear like in exercise circles or sports or whatever that, uh, you know, if you want something bad enough, you just overcome the physical limitation. But that division between thought and, you know, the actual material matter, I mean, that's an inheritance of that. Yeah, we're we're not uh, two partite people. We're not three partite people. We're not even f- quad partite people. We <laughs> yeah. are a complexity of all these different things, right? You know, uh, mind, body, spirit, um, uh, intuition, 
you know, uh, our senses, all of these things that all work together in one being. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we begin to separate them, it, there can be some good use of that. But the problem is that we have to put all these things back together again in order to understand the other ones. So, uh, you know, um, what good is it to know how uh, one cog in the wheel works if I don't understand what's the point of the cog in the wheel? Mm. Yeah. The whole apparatus, so to speak. So two other wrinkles that I want to add to this is um, when I talk about experience being personal, Part of the reason that I do that is to actually empower people whose experience of being human has been very different than my experience of being human. So, for instance, if you are a Palestinian woman under 20, uh, your experience of being human is different than mine, right? And that experience is valid and it informs your worldview, right? So, Part of that is just a recognition of how important experience is. But as a a religious leader, I also try to use that to say that your experience informs your belief. Whatever you think about the world, believe about the world, participate in the world, it should be informed by your experience, but in a really beautiful sort of holistic, you know, mutually informing circle, it should also not just inform your experience, but your experience should inform your patterns of belief and participation, that it should be mutually informing. So that's one of the ways I've tried to make experience a little more complex and not so one dimensional is to say your experience is valid. It informs your beliefs and your beliefs inform your experience. Yeah. And you know, these quadrilaterals and, uh, um, Bevington's, uh, yeah. was this called quadrilateral as well? It was, yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're, they're good to be lifting out of the hole to examine various aspects of our humanness. Yeah. But they can only go so far in describing mm. who we are as human beings, because we are all of those things together. And, the whole is uh, much more complex than the sum of its parts, right? So uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. So, um, so I don't know if it's good to like argue everything from those places. Right. right? Because you can fall in the trap of this sort of modalism that, you know, that uh, segments us to just these things. And, and the more we argue them, sometimes the more they become, our reality, right? Yeah, so that's true. Yeah, go ahead. You said a while ago about things uh, people say, but it's the things people don't say that concern me. For example, <laughs> the Christian church will hardly ever say that orthodoxy is more important to them than orthopraxis. Yeah. That church doctrine is more important than, you know, a life lived right uh, in a good way. Uh, that... Um, the disciplines are less important than the actual, your actual humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and I know that's not everybody, but this is something that's very hard for the church to come to grips with. Mm. And I find it um, very hypocritical because I don't think I can recall too many places where Jesus ever said, 
Uh, we need to get our doctrine right, and then everything will be okay. <laughs> That's a good point. The history of the church is full. It's replete with people killing one another over these doctrinal issues. That's true. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting to hear you to say it like that. Um, Cause what I end up doing is I find myself always trying to help people understand these tools are descriptive, not prescriptive. So we're just trying to describe sort of when we walk into right, a big arena, we're trying to figure out like what's going on there, but it's not, it's not a recipe like prescriptive to tell you what to do. Uh, I always remember when the book, the tipping point. Came out. Put it. Oh, thanks. I remember when the what, book, when the, tipping, the tipping point, tipping. Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. it was such a uh, useful book about how change happens. And when it hits that point that something tips and why some things work and some things don't. And uh, he found these six characteristics, right? And they were really helpful, but almost everything had the first four. And then some things had the sixth, but it was that fifth thing that was like the difference between when something really took off and when it didn't. And when I first read it, I thought it was so helpful to be like, oh, sure, because the connector is the one who says, oh, you know who has an idea about that? And then they introduce you, right? You need a connector. So that makes total sense. But I had a friend who read it as a to-do book and mm -hmm. tried to get his idea. He had this invention he wanted to do. He tried to get his idea. He tried to put the six pieces together as a recipe. And I, right. I will always remember thinking, uh, I don't, I, I don't think that's how that book's supposed to be used. <laughs> yeah. But well, so you they, know, where else that's done all the time is Kubler-Ross's, uh, you know, um, six stages of, uh, grief? of death. Yeah. Grief. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah. Oh yeah. People are all the time. It's like, you know, well, you know, I must not be in this stage because I haven't been through denial yet, you know, or, you know, and that's, uh, so that that's used all the time as a pastor who's done a lot of funerals and things yeah. like that. I've, I've seen a lot of people sort of like, you know, wait for these things as if they have to happen for, the, for them to have normal grief. Right. That's fascinating. I actually didn't, I didn't know that was the same sort of thing that it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Well, oh, that's, that's so interesting. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's no rest that is there. I mean, people live and they die. What else do they actually have to do Like at where everyone has to do it? I mean, breathe. Okay. Uh, but in terms of your actions and your thoughts yeah. and things like that, don't have to do what anyone else has done. And so everything just about then is descriptive rather than being prescriptive. So interesting. All right. So that was the thing that on experience that I feel like if I layered it, I could make it more holistic is by yeah. saying, you know, that experience isn't only personal, but it is deeply personal, but it also happens in community, right? So that got me thinking about reason and how depending on the community that you are a part of, different things can be found reasonable. 
I mean, you know, the things that often make the news are something that a different community finds reasonable that we are horrified by. And this is where the othering, the othering of other cultures happens. And so for me, you know, I'm very aware of how since Mitt Romney's presidential run, how Mormons have been mainstreamed into religious sort of acceptability. Because I grew up with the Mormons being this fantastical, uh, alien, you know, cult. we actually call them a cult, the kingdom of the cults. And they were in that book. And so it has been fascinating in 30 years to watch that. But now that I actually get to interact with Mormons and talk with former Mormons about, I mean, that community has a very different decision-making system, a different priority structure, a different, right? They, they have a logic, if you want to call it that, or a reasoning that is different than anything I've ever participated in or experienced. And so that's been very eye-opening to me as I've listened to Muslim friends, both American Muslims and Muslims from uh, overseas to find how, you know, those different communities function. For the Roma, uh, we used to call them gypsies, but for the Roma people, that there is a reasoning within that community that's very different than Western or European. And so I'm just very aware that it's often the parts that are strange about the other that make the news because they're so foreign to us or fantastical. And um, so I've just been thinking about how reason itself is highly located, culturally located, yeah. So in our book, one of the questions we ask is, you know, for the age of reason, what do you do with the parts that were unreasonable, right? Like genocide, mm-hmm. how, how was that reasonable? And so when you start looking at how that was justified, you know, it's pretty horrifying to look behind the curtain and to think, how was that, how was that at the time considered reasonable? You know, lately people have been reading um, the justification, the compromise that gave to us our electoral system of the Mm -hmm. electoral college and the compromise that that came out of. And people have been horrified. Wait a minute. That's how we came to have this institution? (laughs) Yes, it was a compromise for the Southern slave owners. Yeah. 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 yeah, the, the, there's there's more to this, and I hate to even interject this maybe at this late point in the show, but um, okay. <laughs> but you know, I think white supremacy can be traced back about three thousand years. Okay. Uh, and uh, in in fact, I would say that whiteness itself is a a three thousand year old mythological construct created to say who is fit to rule. And, and, you know, if you're religious, then it's like who God says is fit to rule. You just add that mm. component, right? So, um, and, and whiteness dates all the way back, uh, probably way before Plato, but it was, of course, um, uh, it became popularized, uh, philosophized, uh, systematized 
uh, under Plato, Aristotle, and then it was Hellenism was spread um, by Alexander the Great, who was Aristotle's student. And so, you know, it basically infected the world. And, and then it became seen as a, a normalized way of existence, normalized civilization, the kind of democracy the Greeks had, normalized uh, race of people, those who were sort of Greek-like, then Roman-like, uh, then British-like, where you get Anglo-Saxonism, and, uh, uh, and, and then now American, white American-like. So, so uh, you know, it's not a stretch. There is a, a, a logical thread that can be followed through all of these things and through different people, uh, pseudoscience and, you know, all these kinds of things. But um, in all of that, um, this uh, system of whiteness, one of the things that it must do whiteness must always do is when it does something that the public deems questionable, it must rationalize itself to show that it is still fit to rule and good. And we see that um, largely in Western white dominated uh, by white, I mean, uh, Western European um, kind of folk um, who must rationalize or reason. And here's this emphasis on reason again, the, the bad, terrible, shitty things that they do, right? Genocide, crusades, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those things have to be rationalized so that they can still remain good. So, you know, you might ask like, well, what, how do Native Americans do this then? Mm -hmm. Native Americans just say, I did it. There's no need to rationalize what was done. It, it, it can be good, it can be bad but I did it. Hmm. I've heard you talk about this before. Yeah. It's, it's actually a fascinating upon first hearing it, you might think, Oh, that sounds a little too simplistic, but the more I have heard you talk about this, that you don't need to justify yourself, especially if you are doing it in a good way right or out of good motive then you don't need to explain yourself well and you don't need to explain yourself when you do the bad things you just take responsibility for them still cannot get my head trying to make something that was bad good the only reason for that is to cover yourself so that you can look good right yeah, yeah. and so there's this rationalizing component that comes in uh to and I just got to, you know, say it many, many white people and white histories that I have read mm -hmm. as well as just currently, it's sort of like, you know, well, I did this, but here's why I did it. Yeah. You know, instead of just saying, Oh, it was a terrible thing to do. Yeah. You know, the, so I am, I am open and I'm learning, but the closest I've come to this, I think you'll find this humorous. The closest I have come to this is I have made an agreement with my closest friends. You, you can be a turd if you need to be. We'll still be friends, but don't lie. So if you do something right, if you're, if you're a jerk, we'll still be friends, but don't lie. Because once you start lying, I never know if you're telling the truth. Yeah. And so I, I, I make that agreement or let's just say I expect that agreement with every person I meet. 
The other thing I just wanted to say that I have noticed recently is that not everyone is acting in good faith. And it's been during this political election, but also during our racial reckoning, our moment of racial reckoning, not everyone is saying what they really think. It's been so clear to me that some people are playing a character of whether it's being smug or snarky or condescending because they're trying to steer the conversation away from the actual issue at hand. So if you're talking about racial disparity and they start doing policing your tone or doing uh, false flag arguments or red herrings, they're trying to distract you from the actual right issue that you are, are to be talking about, which is race. But they will talk to you about anything other than race. It really doesn't even matter what it is as long as you don't talk about race. I apologize. My I had to my my, my low back started hurting. I had to raise this up so I could stand up and get off. You were like back. one of those drummers coming out of the, the stage on a platform. You were just rising up. If you could had <laughs> you could had dry smoke in the background, that would have been an awesome visual. That's right. Yeah. And the way I'm all dressed in gray and my gray beard and mustache and hair, I could be Gandalf. Yeah, you're like a Gandalf figure, yeah. With the time we have left, I just want to touch on the fact, switching gears a little bit, that we are celebrating the 399th year of Thanksgiving. 1621. Yeah! 1621 is said to be the first Thanksgiving. Uh, between the pilgrims and the Wabanag people. And um, yeah, so I just thought, you know, we've got one year before our 400th anniversary. And so I know that you, I first read an article by you in 2007 about your thoughts on Thanksgiving. And so I'm assuming in the last 13 years that I know that you have several other articles that you've put out. So I know it's a topic close to your heart. So we just wanted to, you know, sort of pick your brain on it. Well, you know, uh, to stay on the subject matter, maybe it's because I really like food and <laughs> I just want to rationalize. Touche. But yeah, so I, I think the first thing we have to do is say, number one, Let's not call it the first Thanksgiving ever, because most of our ceremonies have been being practiced from time immemorial on this land. And, uh, and most of them, if not all of them, were Thanksgiving ceremonies. And, and many of them, probably most of them, were always accompanied by feasts. So a, a Thanksgiving that shows up in uh, 1621 is really no big deal, right? I guess it was for the pilgrims, right. or at least for the mythological pilgrims. But, um, yeah. And secondly, um, the Wampanoags had made an agreement uh, with those settlers, uh, with those pilgrims, um, that they would be under their protection, which is what you do when a people who have nothing show up and you show them how to plant corn and how to survive the winters and things like this. And so you also give them your protection. Well, so what happens is that the the pilgrims are celebrating this harvest 
and uh, and they hear and they're shooting off their guns, which is one of the things they used to do: shoot their guns in the air. I guess that that was like fireworks. Yeah. And uh, and so the um, uh, a, a group of those who had made the deal showed up with about they they say about a hundred warriors ready to defend them. And what they found was that they were having a feast. And it, it might be a bit ironic. Um, the fact that they're giving thanks for this land that belonged to those people and are living through the winters from shelters that they taught them, uh, helped them build and taught them, and that they're eating food that they showed them how to eat and didn't invite them. Now, there may be some irony here, right? Wow. And so what happens when they show up they don't have enough food for another hundred warriors. And, you know, I don't know how much has changed in Indian country, but like Indian guys can eat a lot. <laughs> so, so they send out a hunting party and they, they probably assumed that they were welcomed. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it was like, Oh, uh, you know, we didn't invite them, but we can't tell them not to come or, you know, I mean, after all we're eating the food they showed us how to get and we're, yeah. you know, so, uh, so they sent some people out and they hunted and they killed some deer and they killed some, you know, other things. They, 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 we know that the feast was probably full of ducks and lobsters and uh, which I love and uh, you know, other kinds of shellfish and mussels and all those kinds of things. It was probably a great feast. And we know that it probably lasted about three days and there was lots of beer flowing and there's probably drunkenness and, and uh, probably a lot of games. Um, Indians always like to do like, betting and racing and all those kinds of things. And so, um, you know, there was probably lots of that, lots of jokes and lots of laughter and, you know, who knows. Uh, but so uh, it, it must have just been a grand experience for the pilgrims to mythological, to mytho- mythologize, yeah. <laughs> mythologize, there we go, to mythologize it. Um, and, of course, they wanted to make a big deal over it. And uh, but we don't see a you know a second Thanksgiving where they invited them or anything like that. We we don't know what really happened after that. We do know that within a relatively short period of time, especially when the Pilgrim colony at Plymouth gets corrupted by the Puritan colony in Boston, Massachusetts Bay Company, yeah. um, who were just treacherous people. Um, you know, those were the Puritans, right? Mm-hmm. We we're talking about reason. These are the this is the epitome of uh, people who reason uh, everything. And, um, and they eventually um, um, asked the Wampanoag to go raid the Pequot massacre. Where uh, some of those, like uh, um, we know that, uh, um, Oh, the Brad, William Bradford was there. We know that, uh, uh, Cotton Mather was there because they wrote about their righteousness in doing what they did by killing men, women, and children. Yeah. Um, they said scriptures uh, declare such uh, that it's okay, right? Yeah. So, um, so we know that these two colonies, probably the Plymouth colony might have done well if it had sort of kept to its word and stayed more to itself, but mm. it was corrupted. I think this is my theory corrupted by the Massachusetts Bay colony and together they warred against uh, 
the Pequots who were just simply in their way of expansion. It was a peaceful Pequot village, and but they justified it through scripture, you know. And so um, as a result, which is again on topic of what we're talking about, we know that you know that 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 became becomes the model, so to speak, of how to deal with Indians who are in your way throughout the spread of the frontier, you know, wow. Western expansion. So yeah, not not a very it doesn't end up being a very happy story for the Indians. Yeah. And um and, and yet that's that part we we hardly ever yeah. talk about. We sanitize that one pretty good. Yeah. But in terms of the myth of Thanksgiving, I I actually think it's a pretty good myth. I don't think we should divorce it from the facts as we know them. Yeah. But I think uh, you know, anything that, I, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't imagine the elders who I have known, the really, really good older elders who I've known, who would sort of look at any kind of gestures at peacemaking yeah, as uh, something bad. Okay. And so I, I think maybe we make a mistake when we concentrate on Thanksgiving. Now, you know, I understand the Wampanoag uh, version uh, and their distress about the whole thing and yeah. you know um, why they have a right to protest because it affected them directly immediately right yeah. um, by the way I heard and I don't know if it's true I haven't read this I've only heard people say it that the the Wampanoags never again scouted for uh, those people because they they thought anybody who would kill people like this um, you know in, in this kind of manner just killing every man woman and child uh, didn't deserve any kind of allegiance. So um, I don't know if that's true or not, but, but should we celebrate it? I think what we can celebrate it is um, if we understand the whole story um, from everything from, you know, Thanksgiving, this being one of many, many, many uh, that were celebrated, you know, from time immemorial, why miss a good chance for Thanksgiving and a feast? Um, and for the same reasons, I think it, it could become a, a holiday basically for both truth telling and maybe even reconciliation. Certainly, without a doubt, restitution needs to be made to the Wampanoag people um, for everybody uh, on, in that area who uh, is descended from those settlers and from the local government of the, the state uh, yeah. and you know whoever else would be sort of in, in on this and responsible because um, they lost a lot as a result of mm. what followed that Thanksgiving. But mm. the day itself or the three days, um, you know, I think not such a bad thing. Interesting. I just want to say how much I love that first point you made that when you have a lifestyle of Thanksgiving and that your communal celebrations are often rooted in Thanksgiving and feasting, that <laughs> to say a first Thanksgiving is really out of order. I mean, we would use the word anachronistic, but it's really out of order and doesn't apply very well at all. Yeah. So, so maybe we need to correct that title. Yeah. Hi, listeners. We want to say thank you. For those of you who are Patreon supporters and we've picked up some new ones uh, recently, thank you. It means a lot to us that you are supporting us and helping us to host this conversation. And um, we have some opportunities. We're actually talking 
uh, with some people who might be able to help us promote this conversation. And so we are really grateful for our Patreon supporters. But we also have a favor to ask for those of you who are savvy with social media. Randy and I think we might be doing something wrong in promoting this podcast. When Randy posts something on his Facebook page, it gets lots of feedback. When I post things off of my blog or onto my Facebook page, it gets really good feedback. When we post off of our podcast page, it gets almost no feedback. And we can't figure out why. So we're pretty sure we're doing something wrong. If anybody is good at Facebook or social media, and you could take a look at this episode, how we posted it on the Piecing It All Together Facebook page, and then how Randy and I each shared it and tagged each other, and let us know what we're doing wrong and how we can get in front of more people. Every time we do get some traction and the word gets out there, we pick up lots of new listeners. But on our average episodes, we clearly are not reaching the audience that we could be, and we don't know why. So help, please. Yep. <laughs> yes, we need help. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of us are digital savants. We're not that fluent. Well, I've got, I've got an excuse. I'm just an old guy. So, By the way, dude, Randy, I almost said we're not digital natives, and I caught myself. <laughs> well, this has been great, and thank you for um, listening in. We would love your feedback. Let us know what you think about reason, experience, logic, and uh, in even Thanksgiving, if you get to listen to this in the week that it's released, we would love to hear your thoughts. Yes, we would. <laughs>